You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 16 the Baroldi case. Some twenty years or so before the opening of the present story, Monsieur Arnold Baroldi, a native of Lyon, arrived in Paris, accompanied by his pretty wife and their little daughter, a mere babe. Monsieur Baroldi was a junior partner in a firm of wine merchants, a stout, middle-aged man, fond of the good things of life, devoted to his charming wife, and altogether unremarkable in every way. The firm in which Monsieur Baroldi was a partner was a small one, and although doing well, it did not yield a large income to the junior partner. The Baroldis had a small apartment and lived in a very modest fashion to begin with. But unremarkable though Monsieur Baroldi might be, his wife was plentifully gilded with the brush of romance. Young and good-looking and gifted withal with a singular charm of manner, Madame Baroldi at once created a stir in the quarter, especially when it began to be whispered that some interesting mystery surrounded her birth. It was rumored that she was the illegitimate daughter of a Russian Grand Duke. Others asserted that it was an Austrian Archduke, and that the union was legal, though morganatic. But all stories agreed upon one point, that Jean Baroldi was the center of an interesting mystery. Questioned by the curious, Madame Baroldi did not deny these rumors. On the other hand, she let it be clearly understood that, though her lips were sealed, all these stories had a foundation in fact. To intimate friends, she unburdened herself further, spoke of political intrigues, of papers, of obscure dangers that threatened her. There was also much talk of crown jewels that were to be sold secretly with herself acting as the go-between. Amongst the friends and acquaintances of the Baroldis was a young lawyer, George Conneau. It was soon evident that the fascinating Jean had completely enslaved his heart. Madame Baroldi encouraged the young man in a discreet fashion, but being always careful to affirm her complete devotion to her middle-aged husband. Nevertheless, many spiteful persons did not hesitate to declare that young Canot was her lover, and not the only one. When the Baroldis had been in Paris about three months, another personage came upon the scene. This was Mr. Hiram P. Trapp, a native of the United States and extremely wealthy. Introduced to the charming and mysterious Madame Baroldi, he fell a prompt victim to her fascinations. His admiration was obvious, though strictly respectful. About this time, Madame Baroldi became more outspoken in her confidences. To several friends, she declared herself greatly worried on her husband's behalf. She explained that he had been drawn into several schemes of a political nature, and also referred to some important papers that had been entrusted to him for safekeeping, and which concerned a secret 
of far-reaching European importance. They had been entrusted to his custody to throw pursuers off the track, but Madame Baroldi was nervous, having recognized several important members of the revolutionary circle in Paris. On the 20th day of November, the blow fell. The woman, who came daily to clean and cook for the Baroldis, was surprised to find the door of the apartment standing wide open. Hearing faint moans issuing from the bedroom, she went in. A terrible sight met her eyes. Madame Baroldi lay on the floor, bound, hand and foot, uttering feeble moans, having managed to free her mouth from a gag. On the bed was Monsieur Baroldi, lying in a pool of blood, with a knife driven through his heart. Madame Baroldi's story was clear enough. Suddenly awakened from sleep, she had discerned two masked men bending over her, stifling her cries they had bound and gagged her. They had then demanded of Monsieur Baroldi the famous secret. But the intrepid wine merchant refused point-blank to accede to their request. Angered by his refusal, one of the men incontinently stabbed him through the heart. With the dead man's keys, they had opened the safe in the corner and had carried away with them a mass of papers. Both men were heavily bearded and had worn masks, but Madame Baroldi declared positively that they were Russians. The affair created an immense sensation. It was referred to variously as the nihilist atrocity, revolutionaries in Paris, and the Russian mystery. Time went on, and the mysterious bearded men were never traced. And then, just as public interest was beginning to die down, a startling development occurred. Madame Baroldi was arrested and charged with the murder of her husband. The trial, when it came on, aroused widespread interest. The youth and beauty of the accused and her mysterious history were sufficient to make it a cause celebre. People ranged themselves wildly for or against the prisoner, but her partisans received several severe checks to their enthusiasm. The romantic past of Madame Baroldi, her royal blood, and the mysterious intrigues in which she had her being were shown to be mere fantasies of the imagination. It was proved, beyond doubt, that Jean Baroldi's parents were a highly respectable and prosaic couple, fruit merchants, who lived on the outskirts of Lyon. The Russian Grand Duke, the court intrigues, and the political schemes, all the stories current, were traced back to the lady herself. From her brain had emanated these ingenious myths, and she was proved to have raised a considerable sum of money from various credulous persons by her fiction of the crown jewels, the jewels in question being found to be mere paste imitations. Remorselessly, the whole story of her life was laid bare. The motive for the murder was found in Mr. Hiram P. Trapp. Mr. Trapp did his best, but relentlessly and agilely cross-questioned, he was forced to admit that he loved the lady, and that, had she been free, he would have asked her to be his wife. The fact that the relations between them were admittedly platonic strengthened the case against the accused. Debarred from becoming his mistress by the simple honorable nature of the man, Jean Baroldi had convinced the monstrous project of ridding herself of her elderly undistinguished husband and becoming the wife of the rich American. Throughout, 
Madame Baroldi confronted her accusers with complete self-possession. Her story never varied. She continued to declare strenuously that she was of royal birth and that she had been substituted for the daughter of the fruit seller at an early age. Absurd and completely unsubstantiated as these statements were, a great number of people believed implicitly in their truth. But the prosecution was implacable. It denounced the masked Russians as a myth and asserted that the crime had been committed by Madame Baroldi and her lover, George Canot. A warrant was issued for the rest of the latter, but he had wisely disappeared. Evidence showed that the bonds which secured Madame Baroldi were so loose that she could easily have freed herself. And then, towards the close of the trial, a letter posted in Paris was sent to the public prosecutor. It was from George Canot, and without revealing his whereabouts, it contained a full confession of the crime. He declared that he had indeed struck the fatal blow at Madame Baroldi's instigation. The crime had been planned between them. Believing that her husband ill-treated her and maddened by his own passion for her, a passion which he believed her to return, he had planned the crime and struck the fatal blow that should free the woman he loved from a hateful bondage. Now, for the first time, he learned of Mr. Hiram P. Trapp and realized that the woman he loved had betrayed him. Not for his sake did she wish to be free, but in order to marry the wealthy American. She had used him as a cat's paw, and now, in his jealous rage, he turned and denounced her, declaring that throughout he had acted at her instigation. And then Madame Baroldi proved herself the remarkable woman she undoubtedly was. Without hesitation, she dropped her previous defense and admitted that the Russians were a pure invention on her part. The real murderer was George Canot. Maddened by passion, he had committed the crime, vowing that if she did not keep silence, he would enact a terrible vengeance from her. Terrified by his threats, she had consented, also fearing it likely that if she told the truth, she might be accused of conniving at the crime. But she had steadfastly refused to have anything more to do with her husband's murderer, and it was in revenge for this attitude on her part that he had written this letter accusing her. She swore solemnly that she had nothing to do with the planning of the crime, that she had awoke on that memorable night to find George Canot standing over her, the blood-stained knife in his hand. It was a touch-and-go affair. Madame Baroldi's story was hardly credible, but this woman, whose fairy tales of royal intrigues had been so easily accepted, had the supreme art of making herself believed. Her address to the jury was a masterpiece. The tears streaming down her face, she spoke of her child, of her woman's honor, of her desire to keep her reputation untarnished for the child's sake. She admitted that George Canot, having been her lover, she might perhaps be held morally responsible for the crime, but before God, nothing more. She knew that she had committed a grave fault in not denouncing Canot to the law, but she declared in a broken voice that that was a thing no woman could have done. She had loved him. Could she let her hand be the one to send him to the guillotine? She had been guilty of much, but she was innocent of the terrible crime imputed to her. However, that may have been, her eloquence and personality won the day. Madame Baroldi admits the scene of unparalleled excitement 
was acquitted. Despite the utmost endeavors of the police, George Canot was never traced. As for Madame Baroldi, nothing more was heard of her. Taking the child with her, she left Paris to begin a new life. Chapter 17 We Make Further Investigations I have set down the Baroldi case in full. Of course, all the details did not present themselves to my memory as I have recounted them here. Nevertheless, I recalled the case fairly accurately. It had attracted a great deal of interest at the time, and had been fully reported by the English papers, so that it did not need much effort of memory on my part to recollect the salient details. Just for the moment, in my excitement, it seemed to clear up the whole matter. I admit that I am impulsive, and Poirot deplores my custom of jumping to conclusions. But I think I had some excuse in this instance. The remarkable way in which this discovery justified Poirot's point of view struck me at once. Poirot, I said, I congratulate you. I see everything now. If that is indeed the truth, I congratulate you, mon ami, for as a rule you are not famous for seeing... Uh, is it not so? I felt a little annoyed. Come now, don't rub it in. You've been so confoundedly mysterious all along with your hints and your insignificant details that anyone might fail to see what you were driving at. Poirot lit one of his little cigarettes with his usual precision. Then he looked up. And since you see everything now, mon ami, what exactly is it that you see? Why, that it was Madame Dubriel, Baroldi, who murdered Mr. Renaud. The similarity of the two cases proves that beyond a doubt. Then you consider that Madame Baroldi was wrongly acquitted, that in actual fact she was guilty of connivance in her husband's murder. I opened my eyes wide. But of course, don't you? Poirot walked to the end of the room, absent-mindedly straightened a chair, and then said thoughtfully, "'Yes, that is my opinion, but there is no of course about it, my friend. Technically speaking, Madame Baroldi is innocent. Of that crime, perhaps, but not of this.' Poirot sat down again and regarded me, his thoughtful air more marked than ever. "'So it is definitely your opinion, Hastings,' "'that Madame de Briel murdered Monsieur Renaud?' "'Yes. Why?' "'He shot the question at me with such suddenness "'that I was taken aback. "'Why?' I stammered. "'Why? Oh, because—' "'I came to a stop. "'Poirot nodded his head at me. "'You see, you come to a stumbling block at once. "'Why should Madame de Briel, "'I shall call her that, for clearness' sake, "'murder Monsieur Renaud? "'We can find no shadow of a motive.' She does not benefit by his death. Considered as either mistress or blackmailer, she stands to lose. You cannot have a murder without a motive. The first crime was different. There we had a rich lover waiting to step into her husband's shoes. Money is not the only motive for murder, I objected. True, agreed Poirot placidly. There are two others. The crime passionel is one. And there is the third rare motive— "'Murder for an idea which implies some form of mental derangement "'on the part of the murderer. "'Homicidal mania and religious fanaticism belong to that class. "'We can rule it out here. "'But what about the crime passionel? "'Can you rule that out? "'If Madame Dubriel was Renaud's mistress, 
if she found that his affection was cooling, or if her jealousy was aroused in any way, might she not have struck him down in a moment of anger? Poirot shook his head. If, I say if, you note, Madame de Briel was Renaud's mistress. He had not had time to tire of her, and in any case, you mistake her character. She is a woman who can simulate great emotional stress. She is a magnificent actress. But, looked at dispassionately, her life disproves her appearance. Throughout, if we examine it, she had been cold-blooded and calculating in her motives and actions. It was not to link her life with that of her young lover that she connived at her husband's murder. The rich American, for whom she probably did not care a button, was her objective. If she committed a crime, she would always do so for gain. Here, there was no gain. Besides, how do you account for the digging of the grave? That was a man's work. She might have had an accomplice, I suggested, unwilling to relinquish my belief. I passed to another objection. You have spoken of the similarity between the two crimes. Wherein does that lie, my friend? I stared at him in astonishment. Why, Poirot, it was you who remarked on that. The story of the masked men, the secret, the papers. Poirot smiled a little. Don't be so indignant, I beg of you. I repudiate nothing. The similarity of the two stories links the two cases together, inevitably. But reflect now on something very curious. It is not Madame Dubril who tells us this tale. If it were, all would indeed be plain sailing. It is Madame Renaud. Is she, then, in league with the other? I can't believe that, I said slowly. If it is so, she must be the most consummate actress the world has ever known. Ta-ta-ta, said Poirot impatiently. Again, you have the sentiment and not the logic. If it is necessary for a criminal to be a consummate actress, then by all means assume her to be one. But is it necessary? I do not believe Madame Renaud to be in league with Madame Dubriel for several reasons, some of which I have already enumerated to you. The others are self-evident. Therefore, that possibility eliminated, we draw very near to the truth, which is, as always, very curious and interesting. Poirot, I cried, what more do you know? Mon ami, you must make your own deductions. You have access to the facts. Concentrate your gray cells. Reason, not like Giraud, but like Hercule Poirot. But are you sure? My friend, in many ways I have been an imbecile, but at last I see clearly. You know everything? I have discovered what Monsieur Renaud sent for me to discover. And you know the murderer? I know one murderer. What do you mean? We talk a little at cross purposes. There are here not one crime, but two. The first I have solved. The second, ah bien, I will confess, I am not sure. But Poirot, I thought you said the man in the shed had died a natural death. Ta-ta-ta. Poirot made his favorite ejaculation of impatience. Still, you do not understand. One may have a crime without a murderer, but for two crimes it is essential to have two bodies. His remark struck me as so lacking in lucidity that I looked at him in some anxiety, but he appeared perfectly normal. Suddenly he rose and strolled to the window. Here he is, he observed. Who? Monsieur Jacques Renaud. I sent up a note to the villa to ask him to come here. 
That changed the course of my ideas, and I asked Poirot if he knew that Jack Renaud had been in Merlin V on the night of the crime. I had hoped to catch my astute little friend napping, but as usual he was omniscient. He, too, had inquired at the station. And without doubt we are not original in the idea, Hastings. The excellent Giraud, he also has probably made his inquiries. You don't think, I said, and then stopped. Ah, no, it would be too horrible. Poirot looked inquiringly at me, but I said no more. It had just occurred to me that though there were seven women, directly or indirectly connected with the case, Mrs. Renaud, Madame Dubriel, and her daughter, the mysterious visitor, and the three servants, there was, with the exception of old Auguste, who could hardly count, only one man, Jack Renaud, and a man must have dug a grave. I had no time to develop further the appalling idea that had occurred to me, for Jack Renaud was ushered into the room. Poirot greeted him in a businesslike manner. "'Take a seat, monsieur. I regret infinitely to derange you, but you will perhaps understand that the atmosphere of the villa is not too congenial to me. Monsieur Giraud and I do not see eye to eye about everything. His politeness to me has not been striking.' and you will comprehend that I do not intend any little discoveries I may make to benefit him in any way. Exactly, Monsieur Poirot, said the lad. That fellow Giraud is an ill-conditioned brute, and I'd be delighted to see someone score at his expense. Then I may ask a little favor of you. Certainly. I will ask you to go to the railway station and take a train to the next station along the line, Abalac. "'Ask there at the cloakroom whether two foreigners "'deposited a valise there on the night of the murder. "'It is a small station, and they are almost certain to remember. "'Will you do this?' "'Of course I will,' said the boy, mystified, "'though ready for the task. "'I and my friend, you comprehend, have business elsewhere,' "'explained Poirot. "'There is a train in a quarter of an hour, "'and I will ask you not to return to the villa, "'as I have no wish for Giraud to get an inkling of your errand.' "'Very well. I will go straight to the station.' He rose to his feet. Poirot's voice stopped him. "'One moment, Monsieur Renaud. There is one little matter that puzzles me. Why did you not mention to Monsieur Hottet this morning that you were in Merlin V on the night of the crime?' Jack Renaud's face went crimson. With an effort, he controlled himself. "'You have made a mistake. I was in Charbourg, as I told the examining magistrate this morning.' Poirot looked at him, his eyes narrowed, cat-like, until they only showed a gleam of green. Then it is a singular mistake that I have made there, for it is shared by the station staff. They say you arrived by the 1140 train. For a moment, Jack Renaud hesitated. Then he made up his mind. And if I did? I suppose you do not mean to accuse me of participating in my father's murder. He asked the question haughtily, his head thrown back. I should like an explanation of the reason that brought you here. That is simple enough. I came to see my fiancée, Mademoiselle de Briel. I was on the eve of a long voyage, uncertain as to when I should return. I wished to see her before I went, to assure her of my unchanging devotion. And you did see her? Poirot's eyes never left the other's face. There was an appreciable pause before Renaud replied. Then he said, Yes. And afterwards, I found I had missed the last train. I walked to St. Beauvais, where I knocked up a garage and got a car to take me back to Charbourg. 
St. Beauvais, that is fifteen kilometers. A long walk, Monsieur Renaud. I, I felt like walking. Poirot bowed his head as a sign that he accepted the explanation. Jack Renaud took up his hat and cane and departed. In a trice, Poirot jumped to his feet. Quick, Hastings, we will go after him. Keeping a discreet distance behind our quarry, we followed him through the streets of Merlin V. But when Poirot saw that he took the turning to the station, he checked himself. All is well. He has taken the bait. He will go to Abalak and will inquire for the mythical valise left by the mythical foreigners. Yes, mon ami, all that was a little invention of my own. You wanted him out of the way, I exclaimed. Your penetration is amazing, Hastings. Now, if you please, we will go up to the Villa Genevieve. This reading comes with kind permission of Agatha Christie Limited. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.